Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and the author of the Complete Compliance Handbook. And I'd like to welcome you to episode 109 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending June 29, 2018. And now, a word about this week's sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team in Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit this episode's sponsors, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. As we get ready for a holiday week, Jay Rosen and myself are back in the saddle to take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. We consider what happens when you lose your ethical way and you're splashed across the front page of the New York Times, the saga of McKinsey in South Africa. Walt Pavlo asks if business schools should stop teaching ethics and start talking about the U.S. sentencing guidelines. We consider the role of the CCO as explored by Kelly Swanson. Bart Schwartz talks to us about the need for independent monitors. Is forward thinking and compliance a serious fraud office brings some charges for bribery and corruption against Unioil. There's a change in heart in Delaware around an ultimate beneficial owners of corporations. Or is there? We explore. I take a look at an AML sentencing of a foreign government official as the bookend to an FCPA case. We consider the <clears throat> announcement, uh, or rather, the new FCPA declination policy that Maddie McMahon explored in the Global Anti-Corruption blog, and we conclude with the SEC's proposed changes around its whistleblower program. This is Tom Fox. I hope you enjoy This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and the author of the Complete Compliance Handbook, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 109 and This Week in FCPA for the week ending June 29th, 2018 the holiday edition. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Monitors, Jay Rosen. Jay, uh, you're not on the West Coast. Where are you today? I am coming to you from um, steamy Needham, Massachusetts, home of the East Coast humidity. Yeah, um, really, I'm, <laughs> I'm really feeling it, really feeling it for you. So, um well, we're back in the saddle again, Jay, and uh, we had, I thought, just a fascinating week of FCPA, anti-money laundering, culture, SDC, uh, serious fraud office, uh, some uh, ultimate beneficial ownership issues around corporations. So why don't we just uh, jump right into it and start off with what I thought was one of the seminal pieces from the New York Times recently on business corruption. Uh, entitled How McKinsey Lost Its Way in South Africa. It details a story of uh, bribery, or perhaps not bribery and corruption, but uh, certainly uh, high risk uh, engaged in by McKinsey, which blew up in their face uh, through uh, either no risk management or faulty risk management in their consulting work for the state-owned enterprise, the electrical company, Eskom, in 
South Africa, they had uh, hired a third party, uh, mandatory uh, local third party per uh, South African law. And it turned out that third party was uh, owned by a person who was close to the uh, Gupta family who were uh, key corruptors and state capturers under the prior regime of President Zuma. And um, I found it really interesting, Jay, because one of the key risk areas which Franklin McKenzie did not manage at all was the uh, not the value of their contract, but their profit. This was a contingent fee contract, meaning that uh, McKenzie would not be paid unless there were cost savings to Eskom. There was no cap, so the cost savings on the particular formula could be unlimited, and it was estimated that the contract would turn $700 million in profit. In one year, they got $100 million in profit. So you had contracts, profits, uh, as a risk factor, and when you have a public entity, you overlay a level of transparency uh, that the information of the contract will at some point get into the public record uh, because it's the government uh, paying the contract. So um, it's never a good day when you wake up and see your uh, company's name, although it was below the fold. It was still a, a huge article over two jump pages and a great article for corporate culture, a great article for the compliance practitioner to study. If you want to get into the weeds of risk and risk management, it had that uh, it had failures of internal controls. It had overrides of internal controls uh, and uh, really just a, a, le- a, a lesson for businesses going forward. We don't know at th- this point if there has been an FCPA investigation opened by either the government or if McKinsey is self-disclosed. So uh, we'll have to keep a watch on that one. Uh, so anything about that strike you, Jay? Uh just like you said, a little bit of something for everyone there. So it'll be uh, totally interesting to see how that all plays out. But um, I, I think I like your first statement that people don't really consider profits of being uh, a risk area. And then uh, when you have such great amounts at play, then I think it brings the focus into that as well. So we had an interesting article by Walt Pavlo. He's a, he's a, a great commentator. I've run into Walt at a couple of conferences, and it was entitled, A Business School Should Stop Teaching Ethics and Start Teaching the Federal Sentencing Guidelines. What was your take on this article, Jay? Well, I, I think Walt's uh, title of this is rather uh, incendiary, but uh, basically he says that the reality is, is that most ethics training occurs long before students enter business school and people get ethics and ideas about that from parents, friends, coaches, and faith leaders. Uh, But one of the things that they really don't know anything about, and it's probably not taught in business school, is the federal sentencing guidelines. And we are always referring back to that when we're looking at different um, FCPA uh, resolutions and, you know, the federal sentencing guideline talking about, you know, what type of penalties they might have to pay. And uh, what Walt did with one of his classes, he asked them about the FSG, and they actually had no idea what it stood for. And then he actually put together, um, you know, a very relevant uh, example of a young associate being asked to change the date on a document by a vice president and what could happen to that person if they backdated the document in such a way. 
And you can bet after this uh, line of uh, questioning and discussion was opened up among the class, they had all sorts of questions about, you know, could they get their their sentence reduced? How does cooperation in the government work? How much were legal costs? So at this point, the class had really been activated because suddenly the federal sentencing guidelines were real and tangible and meant something to them. So although although the title seems a little bit, you know, uh, fiery up there about, you know, we should uh, be teaching, uh, stop teaching ethics and start teaching federal sentencing guidelines. I guess it all goes back to the difference in the approach between the carrot and the stick. And if people had a little bit more fear of the stick, it might keep them uh, better aligned with their ethics and compliance needs. What about your thoughts? So, um, yeah, um, I thought it was interesting, Jay, that he really said we should teach specifically on that. And that probably is something that many of us in the compliance realm have gotten away from, Um I had gotten away from it because the seven elements under the federal sentencing guidelines of an effective compliance program had really been not so much superseded, but uh, additional information was presented in the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program and and going forward. So I really hadn't uh, focused on the federal sentencing guidelines, but perhaps it is time to uh, at least uh, touch back on the basics and uh, make people realize, you know, it's not that these are real laws, that there are real consequences. And that uh, people really go to jail. And uh, we've had some pretty uh, lengthy sentences in FCPA cases. Uh, so uh, kudos to Walt for bringing this up. Um, we had uh, the former chief compliance officer at Panasonic Avionics gave an interview to anti-corruption. And, and I thought it was very interesting. So you want to set it for us, Jay? Yeah. So um, basically, uh, Rob just uh, retired from Panasonic uh, after they just uh, had a settlement with their uh, avionics division. And um, he basically kind of gave a retrospective back on his career. And he described the field of compliance as being constantly evolving and said that it is in this section of the legal profession that has undergone the most change in the past 20 years. Um, He initially started off in 1993 uh, working at Michigan-based TRW, where he learned the basics of uh, compliance. And then things really s- seemed to take off in 2008. And we know that as a seminal year when the German conglomerate Siemens paid $1.6 billion in fines to both the U.S. and German regulators. Uh, one of the things that uh, Rob said is that he really describes his role as being a brand protector. And you have to go out and sell the value of avoiding risk the value of enhancing the company's reputation, and ultimately, if compliance is not followed, the brand will suffer. And um, you know, consequently, uh, Panasonic Avionics is uh, definitely an example of this. Uh, he did not uh, speak anything about that current matter because it's uh, you know something that he can't speak to. But it makes a, a real great interview if you can get in. Um, Global Investigations Review subscription only, but we will provide the uh, link to it. And uh, again, I I think quite often we're trying to talk about um, not making ethics and compliance compatible, but but making it relevant. And whatever it takes, whether you're uh, selling to internal constituencies or you're making this point with third-party vendors, but the 
it seems that more and more often the ethics and compliance professional really has to adopt some of those ideas of being in sales and uh, not only underscoring the value creation of following an ethics compliance program, but selling other stakeholders within the company to buy into that. So the, um, the next article was in the FCPA blog about Bart or by Bart Schwartz. And uh, I really thought it was interesting, uh, something that I've actually heard you talk about, uh, Jay, which are independent monitors and independent compliance reviews. And Bart, who um, is with uh, the chairman of Guidepost Solutions uh, and has served as a monitor, really talked about something, like I said, that I've heard you talk about, which is the proactive use of monitors. And so I found it really positive that we now have you know, others talking about this because it's really the benefits of an unbiased review. So when you have a periodic independent review of compliance programs, you can uh, ensure adherence to the law, uh, even for companies that have an established pro- program. So proactively utilizing a independent integrity monitor for a compliance review is something that uh, certainly can help if you're under investigation. But uh, I think, Jay, uh, really the the better practice now, perhaps even moving to um, standard best practice, is to utilize uh, such a uh, independent monitor for a proactive review. And so it was great to see uh, Bart jump in and uh, talk about this, not only why it's important, but uh, frankly, uh, how to use it going forward. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to see that the uh, concept is really taking a foothold in the marketplace. And, you know, I would <clears throat> even quote back, Back to your blog from earlier this week on Monday when you were talking about innovation and continuous improvement and by utilizing um, a proactive monitor to do a proactive assessment, those are one of the ways that you can keep up and make sure that your uh, ethics and compliance and internal procedures are doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, Next up, we have a story from... Wall Street Journal, Risk and Compliance Journal from Sam Rubenfeld, and the SFO charges Unioil for bribery and corruption. And sounds like uh, we've heard this one before, haven't we, Tom? Well, uh, we have heard the title, uh, but what we have not heard is uh, SFO charging Unioil for Iraqi bribes. So we've certainly heard about Unioil for uh, a couple of years now, and now we have the first uh, charges brought forward. Uh, four individuals uh, connected to the bribes uh, have already been charged. And um, there was uh, work in the United States around SBM offshore. So the saga of Unioil, I think, is only going to become larger. And uh, the story being broke by the Huffington Post and Fairfax Media back in 2016 uh, continues to percolate along. And, you know, once again, I would just say if you're a U.S. company and you've used Unioil in any way, you need to scrub that as closely as you can, because once the government gets uh, the Unioil customer list, uh, they're going to come knocking. Got it. Uh, Let me tee up again. This is again from the Wall Street Journal, uh, our good friend Henry Cutter. And uh, the question we're asking is, did the leopard change its spots or did something real change Delaware supports an overhaul of beneficial ownership requirements. 
Yeah, Jay, this has been um, something that's been going on for years. Numerous congressmen have tried to change the law around uh, ultimate beneficial owners of corporations so that they have to be disclosed. It is a critical component of any anti-money laundering uh, regime uh, to know who the beneficial owners are. Uh, something that we talk about, I think, a fair amount on this podcast and, and is talked about a lot by uh, a lot of other compliance practitioners. But here we have, the, uh, frankly, the first time that the uh, Delaware has um, um, come out and the state of Delaware has said that they, it would be time to get something workable that can actually help law enforcement and get it passed. So Delaware is where the largest number of incorporations have occurred inside the United States, you know, favorable corporate law, I think, has been one of them, but also the, the ability to hide your true ownership. And so when you have the state of Delaware saying it's time for a change, I think uh, it really portends that something uh, will change, but also really a change in the discussion. And uh, Delaware recognizing that it needs to step up, be a part of the discussion by simply uh, saying, no, you're never going to be a part of the discussion or part of the solution. So my hope is that the American Bar Association, who has opposed this law in Congress uh, to put federal oversight over this, uh, will see the error of their ways and we can get some legislation around uh, requiring the names of beneficial ownerships so that so uh, so that the shell company havens uh, will really uh, start to dissipate. So being the um, ever glasses half full kind of guy that I am. Would you foresee a situation when uh, another of the remaining 49 states might step in to fill the vacuum from Delaware? Or is this, um, you know, this rule by the ABA going to apply to all states equally? So the legislation is actually at the federal level so that there would be some sort of federal rule which would require states uh, to obtain this information. You would still incorporate in the individual states so you can have the other protections uh, or whatever benefits you might see to, to incorporating in certain states, uh, whatever they might be in form of taxes, reporting, et cetera. Um, but if we have federal oversight uh, mandating the disclosure of, of the uh, beneficial owners, I think that's that's really where we're going. Great. So let, let me get us back on schedule now um, with the announcement. Oh, wait a sec. Uh, yeah. An AML sentencing bookend for FCPA sentencing. Uh, Tom explains why this is important in the FCPA compliance and ethics block. So, Jay, I thought you were about to give us breaking news that uh, LeBron James has uh, opted out of opting into his player option for his uh, Cavalier contract, and he is now a free agent. So uh, for those uh, Cavalier fans... He's now a Los Angeles Laker? Not yet. Uh, It's unclear where he's going at this point, but, uh, you know, it's early in the day, as Matt would say. Uh, Lots of times for tweets. Uh, But we had an interesting case, Jay. We had a foreign official uh, sentenced uh, this past week in Miami, a gentleman named um, Egbert something Ferdinand Kuhlman, uh, a Dutch citizen. Gotta love that name. (laughs) Yeah. Residing in Miami, he got uh, three years in jail. He was the foreign official who was paid bribes in a massive corruption case involving the Aruba uh, telecom company. He was paid, I think, um, uh, over $1.3 million uh, over 
looks like 11 years. Uh, the company's uh, controlled by a gentleman named Larry Parker, or Lawrence Parker Jr., got $23 million in contracts from him. They also got individual or inside information on their competitors' bids. So uh, Parker had been um, sentenced on FCPA violations in April, and now we have um, Mr. Kuhlman, who was identified as foreign official A in the FCPA enforcement. And Jay really laid out uh, the fact that that we continually talk about, which is if you have an FCPA violation, there's going to be a corresponding money laundering violation because you've got to hide the money somewhere. And that's why uh, beneficial ownership is so important. That's why the, how, the who of you're doing business with is so important. And it's, it's uh, frankly nice to see this sort of book in that we rarely get a foreign official residing in the U.S., stupid enough to reside in the U.S., although I guess he couldn't live in, uh, in uh, Aruba any longer, uh, subjecting himself to U.S. jurisdiction. Uh, one other thing I'd really like to point out about this case was that the uh, information which broke this FCPA case, including Lawrence Parker Jr., including Mr. Kuhlman, was part of the Panama Papers. And it identified a shell company, which he was the uh, beneficial owner of. And that's how information uh, uh, from the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists came to the front. They published it in the Miami paper, uh, Miami Herald. Uh, the Aruba government terminated him. He moved to Miami. The uh, information was given to the U.S. government. And we had a uh, very robust FCPA prosecution. So once again, Transparency in the light of day is uh, really one of the best disinfectants there can be for bribery and corruption. So uh, coming back to me, um, the announcement of the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy in November 2007, what should we call this type of declination? Uh, Maddie McMahon explores this and the global anti-corruption blog. And um, it's, um, it's a real good uh, article here just to really make uh, a distinction that in recent years, the Department of Justice has with increasing frequency been resolving alleged FCPA violations with formal declinations. And that means uh, it's a statement that the DOJ will not prosecute the corporation. Uh, in the past, when these declinations happen, they were not often reported to the public. So with the new corporate enforcement policy, uh, most companies, if they are coming forward and self-reporting, are doing so with the, with the expectation of a declination. And right now, um, a formal declination be should be thought of as something more than simply not a, deci a decision not to prosecute. So we really have two kinds of declinations. Uh, the first time type pursuant to the corporate enforcement policy are to make pub public and formal declination letters and they lay out the evidence that the company is agreeing to and the factors and conditions that lead to the decisions. Second and perhaps more importantly a formal declination in contrast to a simple decision not to prosecute involves terms and conditions that the DOJ negotiates with the company and quite often when we, we see the release we can tell that it's highly negotiated language and it's been agreed to and, uh, you know, by both the company and the DOJ. What is tending to happen now is that in addition to having a, a, a non 
prosecution agreement or defer prosecution agreement, there is also a disgorgement of ill-gotten gains. So at this point now, it's almost like you've got two prongs that you can get a deferred prosecution agreement and you could potentially, uh, if you don't live up to the terms of your agreement, you could be brought back in front of the judge or you have a non-prosecution, but we're seeing now uh, more often than not that you can still have a non-prosecution agreement with disgorgement. So it's, um, it's a little bit of a, a technical differentiation, but I think it does a good job to take a look at uh, the different types of declinations that companies can agree to. So a great, uh, I thought, great uh, exploration of this uh, topic. It's certainly one that uh, I think people need to think about. And uh, I guess uh, where I shake out, Jay, is more transparency, the better. Certainly, the if a declination is granted, the reasons for that declination are, are, are very useful for the compliance community, the compliance practitioner. Uh, I understand companies may not want to have their facts paraded around in public, but it's certainly useful for the uh, compliance practitioner. Jay, yesterday the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission met uh, and uh, took up several topics, one of which I wanted to highlight uh, in today's uh, edition of our holiday edition, I should say, and the uh, SEC seeks the right to cut whistleblower bounties, um, which uh, they wanted to cap the amount available to whistleblowers at uh, 30%. 30%. As you might uh, suspect, the uh, whistleblower bar was pretty much up in arms about this. Uh, Stephen Cohn, who heads the National Whistleblower Center, said the proposed rule kills the goose that lays the go- golden eggs. He went on to say large financial rewards are necessary to encourage high-ranking and highly compensated corporate executives to blow the whistle on fraud. Sean McCasey, uh, former head of the SEC whistleblower's office, said that uh, this, in my mind, is a really explos- is really explosively dangerous. Um, both uh, he and Stephen uh, represent whistleblowers in front of the SEC. Uh, I guess on the, on the monetary award, Jay, I kind of shake out that uh, $30 million is a lot of money. And uh, if you get $30 million um, after taxes, you're probably going to be uh, okay for a while. Uh, whether or not people are going to be incentivized to report frauds that would uh, give them greater than $30 million awards or now disincentivized. I don't know uh, the answer to that, but it strikes me that uh, uh, you would also want to report to the Securities and Exchange Commission for retaliation protection so that there's two, two parts to the SEC reporting for whistleblowers. One is the possibility of a bounty. Second, uh, retaliatory protection, although uh, there are circumstances that you can receive anti-retaliatory protection under Dot Frank. There's a second part, though, that I think uh, is um, a little bit more troubling than the cap, and that is in the proposed guidance, there's uh, a requirement that for a bounty to be paid, a whistleblower's independent analysis must provide insight beyond what would be reasonably apparent to the SEC from the publicly available information. Uh, Sean McCasey believes this language would give the commission greater scope to reject payouts, making it riskier for whistleblowers to even come forward. I don't agree that would be riskier to come forward, but I do agree 
with part one of that, that uh, this language really gives the SEC greater scope to reject payouts. And uh, as a practicing lawyer, I will tell you that if lawyers are not going to get paid, uh, they're not going to be very incentivized. So um, uh, I don't know if this is really a, a way to cut back on the tips given to S- the SEC. Jay Clayton, uh, in public remarks, said that the whistleblower program has made significant contributions to the SEC and that the SEC values the whistleblower program. Nevertheless, it could certainly be argued that these um, proposed changes are going to hurt the overall whistleblower program going forward. So, Tom, you've uh, put some miles on this week. We started off Monday morning at AMI and had a breakfast, and yesterday you had a a book signing in Houston. So why don't you uh, tell us about your travels and how the book is doing and anything that's upcoming? So uh, well, we'll start with what's upcoming. What's upcoming, Jay, is a holiday week. So uh, I hope that uh, you're looking forward to uh, July 4th as much as I do. It's really one of my favorite holidays. So uh, no, no speaking engagements uh, next week that I'm currently aware of. Uh, however, uh, I did have a great week uh, for uh, getting out on the road. I got to go to Boston, uh, check in with you. I'd never been to the AMI offices. Uh, it was really AMI who hosted me, not Tom put it together. So it was you and your team that put together just a fabulous event, uh, breakfast and bagels and compliance. Got to talk about <clears throat> the use of data analytics around a best practices compliance program. A lot of great discussion. Uh, I got to meet Vin. Uh, you know, it's worth it just for that. I uh, got to have a very nice lunch. Then uh, Monday evening, uh, Matt Kelly and Mary Shirley organized an informal meeting of the uh, local uh, Boston compliance group. So uh, Matt and I did a live uh, on location at Kendall Square in Cambridge podcast recording that went up earlier this week in Compliance Into the Weeds. Uh, Yesterday, I had a book signing at the River Oaks Bookstore, my favorite local independent bookstore in Houston. Uh, Just a fabulous event, a great turnout. Uh, So that sort of bookended the week for me. And uh, like I said, I'm I'm looking forward to some heat. I'm looking forward to some humidity. I'm looking forward to a lot of hot dogs, looking forward to some Astro Bay's ball and uh, 4th of July fireworks. Well, it all sounds good to me. I'm looking forward to uh, getting back to the temperate West Coast. Uh, hanging out with my wife because the kids are still at camp. And uh, as always, uh, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We wish you uh, a safe and happy and healthy holiday. And this has been This Week in FCPA, Episode 109, the Holiday Edition. And for Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, thanks for coming to join us and uh, getting all your compliance, ethics, and FCPA news. Have a safe and healthy holiday. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have listened to our podcast on iTunes and you haven't left a review, I'd greatly appreciate it if you would. It would help on our rankings and help get the word out about the only weekly wrap-up of all things FCPA compliance and ethics. If you have any questions from Jay, you can email him at Jay. Rosen at AffiliatedMonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.